0: You so very, very much. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, as we continue to worship this morning. We've been talking about love, uh, God's love for us, our love for God and how that should make a difference in our lives in all kinds of ways. And this morning I want to wrap up this series and talk about loving to please God. And I want to encourage us in various ways just to think through what this really means. Uh, We can begin by asking the question, what kinds of things do you love to do? And we can all come up with various things that we might say we love to do, whether it's build things or play things or be with certain people. And obviously the question is, do we love to please God? Is that something that we could even have a category for? We may not use those words, but is that something that's really a part of our thought day in and day out? You know, what I think about um, where we are today, Uh, Like Mark highlighted, we live in a country right now where we still have the freedom to do what we're doing. Uh, But what if we were in Afghanistan this morning? Or what if we were in Haiti after the earthquake? Or what if we were in in Louisiana uh, facing the hurricane? Um, Is there a view of life that should shape our response to wherever we are wherever we find ourselves as Christians. And that's what we want to think through some more. We've been thinking through that in various ways. And again, I want to use 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3 to help us think again about what is to be our fundamental response to life wherever we find ourselves. Now, obviously, there are things you're going to be doing in the midst of a hurricane that aren't the same thing as what you're going to be doing in the midst of persecution in Afghanistan. And yet, there should be a fundamental response in every situation, in light of what the Bible calls us to. Uh, One of the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks is uh, just one way of talking about the Christian life and how to view the Christian life. This isn't the only way you can say it. The Bible says it in all kinds of ways. It gives us all kinds of pictures of what the Christian life is all about and how we should think about it. This is one way to kind of summarize what we've been trying to communicate over the last uh, couple months anyway. And, even before in different ways, that the Christian life in a sense is for all those who are in Christ, and in Christ means all those who have repented of their sins and are believing in Jesus. Um, We have turned away from living sinfully, not that we don't sin anymore, but it's our desire to be delivered from sin, and we've entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin, the penalty of it, as well as the power of it, and one day the presence of it. And for all those who have that kind of faith in Christ, we can know that God is pleased with us, which is another way of saying we can know and believe the love that God has for us. We've sung a lot this morning about love, and typically in the church we sing a lot about the love of God for his people. Why is that? Because everything we do is to be something that flows out of the belief that God loves us. It's his love for us that is to motivate our love for him and our love for other people. That's the foundation for it. And so to say God is pleased with us, and that means in Jesus, because of our union with Jesus, God is pleased with us by grace through faith. And we are pleased with God above all, which means that because of what Jesus has done for us and being reconciled to God, we have found in Jesus and in God, all that we need and desire. We're not looking around trying to find another God. We're not looking around trying to find someone who can meet our needs and satisfy our souls in principle. Now, obviously, in practice, there are various ways in which we do wander from that and begin looking to people and things for the help we need and for the happiness our hearts long for. And that's what sin is about. It's about wandering from God and trying to find help apart from God and trying to find happiness apart from God. But in principle, we as Christians have found what we need in God through Jesus. And we found what we long for in principle in God through Jesus. And we, we, we say with Peter, uh, when Jesus asks, are you going to leave me too? And we say, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Uh, you're our help and you're our happiness. We're not going anywhere. Though our hearts sometimes wander in various ways and we fight against that. But that is the foundation that we believe that God is pleased with us. He loves us perfectly. And we are pleased with God. We're glad God is our God. And we are satisfied with God who's been revealed to us in Jesus. And we're not looking for another God. With that as our foundation... Out of that, we're to live to please God. Which means I'm not trying to make God love me by living to please Him. And um, it doesn't mean that somehow I'm trying to get something that I don't already have. It just means that I'm trying to enjoy the God I have even more by living to please Him. And I'm seeking to show others the kind of love that I've been shown. And so... 1 John 5, 2 and 3 are a couple verses that kind of, um, in a very short amount of time, highlight some things that help us think through this whole issue. Because what I just described to you is really how we're to respond, whether we're in Afghanistan or right here in Costa Mesa or in Louisiana or whether we're in Haiti or wherever, We as Christians are to know and believe the love that God has for us. We're to believe that God is pleased with us even when there's a hurricane bearing down on us or even when the Taliban is looking for us. We're to believe that God loves us and we're to be satisfied with God, that God is up to something good and we're trusting God for that good, even in the hurricane, even in the persecution, just like that pastor said. God is building his kingdom, he's up to something good, we're satisfied with God. And we're praying, God, help me do what is pleasing to you. Help me to honor you in the face of what I'm facing, whatever it is. And so it doesn't matter where we are, that kind of vision for the Christian life, as it's explained to us in the Bible in all kinds of ways, Is how we're to live. And so I want to just highlight what John says about uh, this in these uh, couple verses and uh, try to encourage us uh, and remind us of some things that I think hopefully will help us even as we in our own country find ourselves in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christianity and increasingly anti-Christian and pagan in the way it looks at life. Increasingly so. So what we find in 1 John 5, and I actually have this up here for those who may not have your Bible with you. Verses 2 and 3 of 1 John 5. Say, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, obviously, in verse two, when he says, by this we know, he's implying that this is something we want to know, that we really care about whether or not we love people. So when he says, by this we know that we love, in this case, the children of God, it's highlighting the fact that we should want to know whether or not we're really loving people. And the question is, how do we define that? How do we understand whether or not we are really loving someone and he highlights the idea of agape love and there's a lot that can be said about that but he's not talking about just uh, the kind of love that is often shared among people that aren't even believers he's talking about christian love he's talking about a love that delights in other people in a certain way and desires their good and does them good according to what the bible says at cost to itself And does so even for enemies, would even act that way toward the Taliban in Afghanistan, would even act that way toward a Democrat if you're a Republican or a Republican if you're a Democrat uh, in our country in this day and time with so much hostility between the parties. It would be a love that is very much about delighting in the good of the other person, desiring that, pursuing that, being willing to sacrifice for that, and even doing that toward those who would never do that back toward you. That's the kind of love that is being talked about here. He says that this love is very much connected to observing his commandments. And the idea of observing the commandment is to to do what God tells us to do or Might do what God tells us not to do. And it's it's a word that implies the idea of making something visible. So to observe a commandment is to live it out. It's to make it visible. When God says, love your neighbor, if you obey that, you live that out and you show people what that looks like so that they can observe love in you as you observe God's commandments. The idea of keeping his commandments is a little different Very closely related though, it's the idea of basically keeping something uh, and guarding something that's important or that's like a treasure. You know, I guard God's commandments because I want to make sure that I give attention to them, that I put them into practice, that people can see them lived out in my life. And he says, God's commandments are not burdensome. The idea of burdensome is weighty and it's weighing us down. And how might that be? It might weigh us down in the sense that it's keeping me from what's good. It's keeping me from life. It's keeping me from success. And he's saying, God's commandments do not keep us from life. They do not keep us from success. They do not keep us from what's good, even though that's exactly what Adam and Eve thought in the garden. Satan comes along and says, God's keeping something good from you by telling you not to eat from the tree. He's burdening burdening you with the weight of not being able to pursue your ultimate and greatest happiness. And they believe that lie. And John says, God does not command that which will keep us from what is good. The lover of our souls would never command that which would keep us from what is good. The lover of our souls always commands what would truly bring us the most joy and happiness well we want to think about the implications of that and the applications of that this morning and i put this on these slides just to maybe help us keep these things in mind because i know for me uh and probably for you too we just need help focusing sometimes on sunday mornings well the first thing that i want to say is these verses just these two verses we talked about are in, in the greater context of first john and if you read first john there are there are themes that run through John that are just kind of repeated over and over again. And if if you uh, read First John and get lost, it's very easy to get lost sometimes because he seems to be going back to the same thing over and over again, and he's saying the same thing in various ways, and he's weaving together uh, faith in Christ and loving people and the Word of God and all those things. And ultimately, he's arguing for how can we know that we are Christians? If you read 1 John 5.13, he says, By this we know that we're in Christ. We, uh, we have eternal life. And the whole book is about that. And one of the things he emphasizes is, Those who've been born again are concerned about living to please God. And the way it's put in 1 John 3.22 is, He says, Whatever we ask Speaking of believers in Jesus, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So he connects keeping the commandments of God with doing what is pleasing in God's sight. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, when he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him or to be pleasing to God so that. One way the Bible talks about the Christian life is the Christian life fundamentally is a life in which the person says, my goal is to please God. When I get out of bed, I want to please God in how I relate to my wife. I want to please God in how I relate to my husband. I want to please God in how I relate to my children or to my parents or to my employer or to people on the freeway or to whoever it might be or people in power the president or congress or whoever. My goal should be to please God. Um, This year we've done a a lot of talk about various things, and it's been more topical in the sense that my heart has been to prepare us for whatever is to come in our country. Um, There are a lot of people who think there are a lot of things going on in our country that are meant to fundamentally change life in our country. And therefore... Um there's a lot of talk about the fact that we, as believers need to get ready for some very fundamental changes in terms of life in our country. It's not going to be the same if the people that are behind these things really uh get their way, and God may allow it, and He may not. who knows we'll see how it plays out. but ultimately, uh, we want to know that God is pleased with us we're pleased with God. And we're living to please God in light of that. And so let me say, I try to answer a few questions in light of that statement that I made just a few minutes ago about in Christ. God is pleased with us and we are pleased with God. So we live to please God. One question that could be asked is, how can God be pleased with me when I still sin? So how does that work? Well, are you pleased with your two year old? when they're going through the terrible twos? Well, that's a yes and no response, right? In one sense, we would say, I would never say away with you. We're not going to reject our two-year-old. We're not going to cast them off. Now, it's true that some parents have, but most parents are are very glad they have that two-year-old, and they love that two year old, and they're satisfied in that sense with that two year old. They would not trade that two year old for anything, even on their worst day. But that doesn't mean they like everything that two year old does, and that they're not working to uh, change that two year old's behavior in various ways. And so we are in union with God through Jesus, and in a sense, that's so very important. He is satisfied with us. He is pleased with us. He would not trade us for anything. Even on our worst days. Whether we're having our terrible twos or our terrible terrible fifty-twos or ninety-twos or whatever twos we might be having. He's not going to trade us for anything. He's pleased with us in that sense, even when we're sinning because of Jesus. Another question that can come up is how can I be pleased with God when life is so painful and unsatisfying? That's the second part of the phrase. God is pleased with us, and I'm pleased with God. How could I be pleased with God when there's a hurricane coming, when the Taliban's coming, when hard things are coming that I know that I'm anticipating? How can I be pleased with God? It's by believing that the God who is in charge of everything is, truly loves me and is at work for my good. I'm trusting that he is loving me, are you pleased with your dentist when he does the necessary root canal? Yes and no, right? Um, it's like C.S. Lewis would say: uh, those who say that, um, you know, knowing that God loves me doesn't cause me any fears, like the person who says, uh, going to the dentist uh, doesn't cause me any fear. What, what does he mean by that? He means that the dentist loves you by taking you through painful circumstances to relieve you of even worse circumstances. And that's what God the Father does too. He loves you so much that he takes you through painful things to rescue you from more painful things. More painful things that we can even imagine. And so I can be pleased with the God who loves me so much that he will not simply give in to my tantrums. So we were told when we were parents with two-year-olds, they can throw their tantrums, but don't let them have their way. You love them. You love them by doing for them what they need to do, even when they throw those tantrums. And the reality is we all throw tantrums, even as we grow up. And yet God loves us so much, he will not allow our tantrums He will not allow our accusations of not being loving to keep us keep him from loving us. He will love us anyway. And the final question that comes up from that, just that little phrase that I talked about earlier is, and this relates to the point that I'm making, why should I live to please God if he's already pleased with me? Some people would argue, well, if God is pleased with me and he loves me, then I can do what I want, right? Well, um, When you got married, is that the way you felt? When you got married and your spouse accepted you and welcomed you, did you feel like you could go on dating other people and doing whatever you wanted to do? No. Why? Because you knew that that relationship, in order to be enjoyed, required certain things. And it's the same way. Um, You don't stop wanting to please someone just because you're now married to them. In fact, that should actually motivate you to want to please them even more. And so the fact that we've been reconciled to God, in fact, the Bible says we've been married to God. We've been married to Jesus. shouldn't mean we should be content with running around and being unfaithful to Him. It should cause us to want to be even more faithful to Him. And so that's all meant to highlight The first point is that our goal as Christians should be to please God. It should be something that shapes every moment of my day, no matter where I find myself, whether it's here or across the world or in the midst of a storm. Secondly, another part of the the context in 1 John is that, obviously, based on what we just read in the prior verse and this verse too, the idea of pleasing God very much is connected to loving and loving according to the way God defines love. Because in our day and time, a lot of people talk about loving, but it's disconnected from what God says love is. In 1 John three twenty three, it says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. How? Just as he commanded us. So we are to love just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now that last part means the Holy Spirit is in us to lead us to obey the word of God so that we love like God loves. The Holy Spirit is in us leading us to obey his commands so that we will love like God loves. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 says, But the, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so God calls us to please him by loving. And loving him is connected to what he commands us to do. And this is so important because our culture right now is very much like the book of Judges. If you go back and read the book of Judges, you see it said several times in the book of Judges, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that seems to be where our culture is. Everyone wants to define themselves according to what's right in their eyes. They want to define marriage and love in accordance with what is right in their eyes. They want to define their lifestyle, right lifestyle, wrong lifestyle, in light of what they think is right or wrong, um, And so we live in a society where someone who's biologically male can say, I identify as a woman. Uh, Someone can say in our culture now, I believe love is all that matters. So any two people can get married. We live in a, a world where even in the church, people are beginning to say, I don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Or there are other people will go so far as to say, If someone's been hurt or victimized in any way, present time or even past, they can do or say whatever they want. That somehow our experience, somebody else's sin against us, can free us to do whatever we want to do, whether it's rioting or anything else. And so, why is that happening? It's because for decades we've said there is no God We're just an accident, a cosmic accident. And if there is no God, there is no objective standard of right and wrong, and then the only result is every man must do what is right in his own eyes. That's where we are as a society. And so it comes down to defining love either in terms of my own personal feelings or in terms of popular opinion, or as Christians it should come down to what God says is love. And so that brings us to 1 John 5, 2 and 3. So that's the context of all this. And so the first thing that I want to highlight and emphasize this morning in light of the two verses that I read, and this is something that I want to encourage us to really think about because I think we lose sight of this so often, is that John is making the point you can't love people without loving God. Now, many people would react to that and say, wait a minute, I know of a lot of people that aren't even Christians and they seem to be very loving people. We have to remember that the love that's being defined here is a love that does not come naturally. It's a love that only comes through people who are enabled by the Holy Spirit to live a certain way. And it's not a love uh, just for your friends. It's a love for your enemies. It's not just a love for people who are easy to love. It's a love for people that are hard to love. It's not just for people who always do what you want them to do, but for people who continually do what you don't want them to do. It's that kind of love. And that's a love that doesn't come naturally. That's a love that is supernatural. It takes being reconciled to God and being given the Holy Spirit of God in order to live that way. And so that's why John in 1 John 2, excuse me, 5 verse 2, says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. So do you hear what he's saying there? He says, We love the children of God when we love God. So if you take out loving God, And that means you must not be loving the children of God or anybody else. So love for God is essential to that. And that's why in Matthew 22, when um, a lawyer came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says, this is the great and foremost commandment, meaning this is the number one thing. This is the... This is the number one reason why people were created to love God with all that they are. And he says, uh, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. For some reason, I think we tend to think, well, maybe if I start with loving people, eventually one day, maybe I'll get to loving God. That's actually not the way it works. Uh, It's kind of like that illustration you may have seen where they say, now I want you to fit in this jar or in this bucket um, the sand, these pebbles, and these big rocks. You've probably seen the the demonstration where if you put the sand and pebbles in first, you won't get all the, the big rocks in. But if you put in the big rocks first and then the sand and the pebbles, you can get them all in. So if you put the big things in first, the other things will be able to be fit in appropriately. That's one way of picturing what is being said here. Another way to picture it is what C.S. Lewis said. And I think I mentioned this last time. He said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. So he talks about the woman who loves her dog. Loves her dog most of all. He would say, in the end, she becomes more... Um, selfish and useless to people by putting her dog first or the man who puts alcohol first makes it his chief good he just wants to drink and have a good time in the end c.s lewis would say he begins to not even find satisfaction in that and obviously isn't any good to anybody else he even talks about men who worship the 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 ground that a woman walks on he says if that really happens Ultimately, um, one day, uh, if that's all he can think about is that one woman, he will not even enjoy her. He'll come to the point of not even enjoying her because he's made her number one rather than God. He says, Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made you can't get second things by putting them first you get second things only by putting first things first it's another way of saying if we're going to love people we have to put first loving god which means not perfectly obeying him but it means I am satisfied with God, that I put my hope in God for what I need and what I desire, not in people or things, and I seek to honor him in every relationship. That's what that means. And so think about the people in your life, whether it's your spouse, your children, your parents, or your your neighbor. Um, When you think about loving them, do you think about the importance of loving God most in order to love them. Is that something that shapes how you pray? Is that something that shapes how you approach loving your spouse or loving your children, or loving your parents or loving your neighbor? Um, it should be because God says that's where we start. We start with worshiping him, honoring him, so that we're free to love people. Um, the fourth thing that I want to highlight is that John brings out is that you, you can't um, love people without loving God. And you can't love God without loving his word. Because he says at the very beginning of verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, that's not all that there is to loving God. Loving God is a heart thing. It's about how we look at God and we trust in God and hope in God. It's all those things. And yet he highlights the fact that you cannot truly, uh, fully and appropriately love God without a proper relationship to his commandments or to the Bible. Uh, We have to keep his commandments. And so the question is, what does that mean? Um, Well, if you read Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, over and over again, every verse is about the Bible. It's about the law of God and how important it is and how uh, crucial it is. And let me just point out a number of verses in Psalm 119 that talk about loving the law of God or the the Bible. Uh, The psalmist says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. Consider how I love your precepts. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Those who love your law have great peace. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. So the psalmist is expressing his love for God by expressing his love for the law of God. Why why would that be? It's kind of like um, if you look at a picture of your, your spouse, you might say, I love... That picture of my spouse. Was it your wife or your husband? Why is that? Is it because you just like an image on a, uh, some photo, photo paper? No, it's because it represents the living person. It's intimately connected to the living person. So you love that picture because of that. And what do you find in the commandments of God? You, you find the picture of God. You find what God looks like in practice. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. He came to do all that his father commanded him. And he lived it out. We can we look at what the law of God looks like by looking at the life of Jesus. Because he perfectly fulfilled everything the Bible calls us to. And so that's why we're to treasure them. We're to keep our eye on them. We're to work at putting them into practice. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that practically speaking, when we think about loving our spouse or our children or our parents or our neighbor, we have to ask ourselves, how much of my time and effort is given to thinking about what the Bible says I am to do to love them? Because if I'm not spending much time thinking about what the Bible says about loving them, then I have to wonder how far off track I've gotten from really loving them in the way that God says is really love. And so um, all of these things are meant to encourage us to uh, re- just remember that there's a, there's a close connection between God and his word and loving God and loving his word. And so if I have to start with loving God in order to love other people, I need to know that loving God and loving his word go together. So that gives me a practical vision for, okay, then I need to love God's word so that I can truly love people. And that brings us to this last point. Um, You can't love God's word without seeing it as satisfied and satisfying. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. He says at the end of verse three, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, a lot of people would take issue with that statement. Um, have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone has hurt you deeply and you read your Bible and it says, forgive others just as I have forgiven you. And you've thought, no way. I can't do it. Why is that? Or or how many times even just in our, our lives we we. We read the Bible, maybe we read Psalm 119 and we think, wow, that's talking a lot about how important the Bible is. But I'm not sure I can really make much time for the Bible. I've got so much to do. It seems like a burden to actually spend time in the Bible because I've got so many other things that I need to do. There's so many ways in which the idea that God's commandments or his word is really a burden so that we don't spend much time in it. And when we read it, many times we feel like, I just, I think that would be oppressive. I think that would be, uh, that would keep me from really what is good or helpful. If I really did what the Bible said, I'm not so sure that would be something that would be a good thing for me or really make me happy. And so there are two things that I want to highlight about that. And the idea of burdensome, first of all, how can John say that? How can he say that reading the Ten Commandments should not be oppressive to us, or reading all the things that God calls us to in uh, the Sermon on the Mount? Why isn't that oppressive to us, or shouldn't be oppressive to us? Well, first of all, because it's been satisfied. All the commandments in the Bible have been satisfied for us by who? By Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill every commandment for us. That's why in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now what does he mean when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Does he mean that it's, easy for you to forgive someone who's hurt you deeply. No, that's not what he means. He means that you do not have to try to live up to that perfect standard anymore. You just simply need to receive the fact that I've fulfilled it for you. I have perfectly forgiven. I have perfectly accepted others. I've perfectly loved others and I died on the cross for your failure to do so. I've perfectly fulfilled the law. I have satisfied the requirements of the law, both in terms of what you have to do and in terms of the penalty that you deserve for it. I've satisfied it. And so when I read my Bible, I don't have to be condemned. I don't have to walk away from my quiet time feeling condemned because, wow, I just don't measure up. You're right. You don't. You never will. None of us will measure up. The Bible is going to continually show us how we fall short. But that's okay because Christ didn't fall short. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law and then he died for us and took the punishment we deserve for not fulfilling the law. And so in that sense, God's word and his commandments have been satisfied. And I can rest in Jesus. I can rejoice in Jesus as an able and willing Savior for me, for sinners, for you. And then secondly, the law of God, the word of God is not burdensome because it actually is the path to happiness. It is the path to happiness for those who, who have the law satisfied on their behalf through Jesus. That's why I can say in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the psalmist could say, I love God's word because it restores my soul. It makes me wise. It causes me to have joy. It opens my eyes to things that I need to see. It, It is so valuable that I, I love it more than money. I love it more than a good in and out burger. I love it more than anything this life has to offer because it warns me of what will bring me death and it rewards me with all that my heart longs for as I trust it and as I obey it, I actually experience the goodness of God through his word. That's why Jesus could say in John 15, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So you hear what he's saying? If you want to enjoy my love, experience my love, and be able to express my love, keep my commandments. If you want to enjoy it and express my love, keep my commandments. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus lived to keep the Father's commandments, and he loved perfectly. He calls us to do the same thing. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full, so what is he saying? He says, "Live like I lived. I live to obey the Father and do his commandments. You live to obey the Father and do his commandments, and I promise you it will be your path to joy. it will be your path to perfect, full, and lasting happiness you will you'll be more at peace, more satisfied, more joyful." as you give yourself to this not not to earn anything but to experience it you're not trying to to manipulate your position before god you're seeking to experience god through that and you're seeking to be a, a vessel through which the love of god flows to other people as well so we could say why is why are god's commands not a burden Number one, Jesus has already fulfilled them for us. He's already fulfilled them for us. Number two, he's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey. Number three, I pursue them to pursue my own happiness. I'm not being kept from my happiness by pursuing them. I am pursuing my happiness by keeping them. To pursue them is to love God and love others. If I really want to love my spouse, then I'll want to keep God's commandments. If I really want to love my children, then I will want to keep God's commandments. If I really want to love my neighbor, then I will seek to keep God's commandments. If I really want to love God, then I will seek to keep his commandments. It's when we don't believe these things that we really struggle with the word of God and we, we don't end up loving the word as we should. Well, let me just wrap up and next five minutes by just um, just a little encouragement. This is a little simple thing to do that you can take away in terms of just everyday life. Let me encourage you to ask yourself, how do you make decisions? Is it simply based on what you think, what you feel, what you want, what other people want? What is the easiest thing to do? What is the most comfortable thing to do? What is the most pleasurable thing to do? What avoids pain? The reality is, we all think in those terms. Those are always things that come to mind and influence our decisions. But really, there are three basic questions we need to ask ourselves in light of what the Bible tells us. Number one is, what is the right thing to do according to the Bible? That's a question that most people in our culture will never ask. And even in the church, more and more people don't even think that way anymore They don't think in terms of what is the right thing to do, which means there's an objective standard. It's not just about what I think is right. It's about something God says is right, no matter who you are. What is the right thing to do? Now, secondly, there are things that God hasn't addressed, and he's given us the opportunity to evaluate and make choices in terms of wisdom. So there are some things that are clearly right and wrong. There are other things in which God tells us to be wise. And so the second thing is the question, what is the wise thing to do? All things considered. We may not know exactly what to do in a particular situation. We know the boundaries of it. The Bible says, don't do this and do that. But there are a lot of other decisions that might need to be made. And he calls us to exercise wisdom. What is the wise thing? All things considered. Not only what the Bible says, but from wise counsel from other Christians maybe wise counsel from people even outside the church in certain situations. There's all kinds of ways we can get ideas about about what the wise thing to do is. I mean, if we're thinking about caring for our our parents who are getting older, the Bible isn't going to give us a verse that tells us exactly what to do. But the Bible gives us some parameters about honor your mother and your father, tells you you should be concerned about your parents, you should be concerned about honoring them and caring for them in their old age. So there's this boundary of right and wrong. But in terms of the details, we need wisdom. And so we pray for wisdom. We seek wisdom in all kinds of ways. Then there are some decisions that God actually says, do what you want. You go to the the, the uh, car lot, and you got the choice between the red car or the blue car. Do you have to spend time praying about that? God just says, pick what you want. You want the red car, buy the red car. You want the blue car, buy the blue car. You don't need a word from God about the red or the blue car. There are some things that God just says, you know what, pick what you want. There are some situations that are just like that. The problem is when we make that the number where we start, we start with, I think I'll just do what I want. No, that's the last consideration. The first consideration is, what's the right thing to do? Second consideration is, what's the wise thing to do? Then the last consideration for many situ- situations is, okay, what do I prefer? Where do you want to go for dinner, honey? Well, let's ask God. <laughs> yeah, well, you could, but you ought to just say, what do you prefer? You know, you don't need a word from God in uh, so many situations, but don't start there. That's where our culture is. They're starting with, what do I prefer? And they're ignoring what is right and what is wise based on the word of God and a lot of other factors what if i don't really want to take into consideration god's word what if i don't love god's word well it could be that we're very young in christ we're, we're a babe in christ and we're not thinking very well and we need to really listen to what the bible says about the importance of the bible it may be that we're caught up in the world and we're caught up in doing what we want to do and we've lost sight of it it may be that we're angry and bitter against god and therefore we don't want to read God's word. We don't want to make it a priority. Could be we're involved in some sin, and the word of God just reminds me of that. So I don't want to be involved in reading the Bible. Could be we're not Christians. There are those who claim to be Christians, but never give much thought at all to to the Bible and its role in their lives and its role in their decision making. And first John makes it very clear. That if we just don't have any desire for the word of God to trust it and obey it and apply it, then we don't have good reason to believe we're even Christians if that's really the case. But let let me close with just one encouragement. There's a story that I read from Tim Challies who told this story about this guy who back in the day where they were settling things on this side of the country in the West and people were traveling and Buying uh, vast uh, areas of land and this guy from the east bought a big area of land and he moved his family out to the west and when he got there he began building a house for him and doing all the things that needed to be done and finally one day he decided to begin looking at the land that he bought he hadn't even had a chance to explore it and he went up to this high perch and began to see how beautiful and wonderful the land was with lakes and rivers and animals all over the place and just a beautiful piece of land and he couldn't even see the edge of it and he went back to his family and said you know we need to continually move our fences out further and further and get to know this land that we have purchased we've we've bought this land at at the cost of everything we have and we need to get to know the land that we have come to enjoy and um this is what uh, Tim Challies said in applying that to us as Christians. He said, My friends, when we traded all we owned for the pearl of great price, we made no fool's bargain. When we sold everything we had and bought the field laden with hidden treasure, we completed the wisest of all transactions. We traded rags for riches, the finite for the infinite, what we cannot keep for what we cannot lose. We traded it all to become settlers in the promised land of God's divine love. Whether we have been in this territory for days, years, or even decades, the truth is that we have only just begun to settle it, only just begun to discover its wealth, only just begun to know the precious reaches of the love of God. We have seen the first few acres, plowed the first few fields, enjoyed the first small harvest, We have seen and known him as merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. We have experienced his compassion, his patience, his forgiveness. We have begun to learn how he does not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. How he grants new mercies with each new sunrise. We have already learned that while his anger is but for a moment, his favor lasts for a lifetime. That while we may weep before him for a night... Rejoicing will come with the morning. There are still vast territories of love laid out before us, still great treasures of love to discover and unearth. But even with all this resounding in our minds, even with all of this rejoicing our hearts, we must acknowledge that we have still explored little more than the first few steps. There are still vast territories of love laid out before us, still great treasures of love to discover and unearth. We know that through the endless ages, we will continue to push out the fences of our knowledge, continue to expand the reach of our understanding. Yet all the while we must acknowledge we never can and never will reach the end of this land for it is unbounded and unlimited, measureless and vast. We know that in 10,000 times 10,000 years, we will still be discovering, still be marveling, still be rejoicing at the love of our great God the love that is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell, the love that goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell, the love that is rich and pure, the love that is steady and true, the love that is infinitely beyond the measure of any man or angel, the love that will be our joy, our song, and our delight through all the endless ages to come. My encouragement is living to please God is exploring the land of God's love for you and for me. We seek to love God and express his love to others and we get to know the love of God for us in greater, deeper, richer ways. May God give us greater grace to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement from your word. Father, all of us need to hear it. I need to hear it. We all need to hear it. We all struggle in so many ways. We all lose our focus. We all tend to undervalue what you've given us in your word. We, we, we all tend to lose sight of how important it is to pursue our love for you in order to love the people around us. Father, please help us. Please renew our minds. Please strengthen our faith. Please lead us. Help us to apply what we've heard. Help us to embrace what your word says. And help us to seek to love you better and love others better in light of your word depending on your spirit and may we explore your love for us. May you indeed reveal yourself to us in greater, deeper, richer ways even as we seek to live to please you knowing that you are already pleased with us and having already set our hope upon you as the one in whom we are pleased with. We love you and we thank you. Please help us.